Welcome to Hevray Connect. I'm Zach Garber, your host and a current Hevray member. In this podcast, you will get the opportunity to learn about the incredible Cabinet Young Leadership Program. We will explore the stories of fellow Cabinet members, alumni of the program, and educational series about the Jewish Federations. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends, family, and local Jewish Federation. Enjoy. Just to be four-and-a-half-year-old at home, and my number one job is being a mom. And I I was scared, but I, I knew that it was my responsibility, and I knew this is, his, this is going to be the history that she learns about, and I wanted to be able to tell her one day when she's old enough to understand, this is what your mommy did. You know, I asked my parents or my grandparents, what did you do during the civil rights? Or, and I want to be able to give her an answer. For these children that I met in that camp, uh, they haven't had a normal year of school in three years, right? Like there was COVID and then they probably went back with masks and, you know, like maybe did half a year of learning and then immediately the war broke out and they were at home again. So it is going to be a long time until their lives are normal and we need to be there for them, for our Jewish brothers and sisters in Ukraine. JFNA and our partners, Jaffe and JDC are able to do all this work is because they've been in this region and working here for decades. Day one, they're able to, to keep going and, and make life better and, and really give pride and dignity and hopefully like a sense of normalcy to you know the youngest to the oldest in our population. Welcome to another episode of Hevray Connect. I'm very excited for our episode today. Well, one, Shana Tova to everyone who's listening. Happy, healthy, meaningful new year to all of our Hevray. I have the honor and privilege of not interviewing one, two, but three of our Hevray. I'm going to be interviewing Abby Goldstein, who is a member of JFNA's Ukraine Task Force, Brett Tansman, who I think you might have to get a jacket if you come back for a third time, but he is the cabinet co-chair. And then we have Haley Traeger, who is cabinet INO vice chair. The three of them just went on a very important mission. We thought it was so important that we wanted to do this live and also do it as a podcast episode. They went with 12 leaders from the Federation. And this was the first trip on the ground to Ukraine from any of the major Jewish organizations since war broke out 18 months ago. The Jewish federations have collectively raised more than 90 million in humanitarian aid. So we thought it would be really important to bring to life their experience, learn what happened on the ground floor. So Abby, I think it would be great if you could share a little bit more about what it was that you guys experienced in Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. Zach, I'm going to back up just a minute and talk about the task force just to set the stage for everybody. So I am really lucky to be representing Cabinet along with Gil Selinger, uh, who is the INO vice chair along with Haley. And the way that JFNA is doing the funding is that first round was the emergency phase. And that was, you know, a war is broken out. We have to get everybody out, but we don't know what's needed. And we're going to ask for money and we're going to put it to use as seen. And now we're in what we're calling phase Two, which is the war is still happening, 
there is still very much need on the ground, uh, but we don't necessarily, we know what some of that need is, but we don't know the scope and we don't know how best we're gonna help the people that are there and how to collectively raise the money for another round to go back and ask our federations to do that. So that's why they created this Ukraine response task force so that we can assess the need and moving forward, make sure that we have enough money raised to cover what is needed now and potentially in the future when hopefully this war ends. So with that, they decided to take the first group of Jewish leaders from a major organization into Ukraine to assess the needs on the ground, which is why I was invited and Haley and Brett got to join me, which was wonderful. So I don't know if many of you know, but I was asked by our CEO in St. Louis to go on a fly-in at the beginning of the war. So it was March of 2022. And when we went, uh, there's no better way to describe what I saw then as just pure chaos. Uh, people were coming over the border by the thousands every day. They were terrified. They didn't know what was next. They were leaving behind their husbands and their sons. They were leaving family. And their main priority was get out now and get to safety. And so many of them only thought, right, that this would last a month, two months, and, and they didn't know that their main priority was to get out. And I'm sorry if you've heard me tell this story before, but I think it's so telling of the feeling there. This was right before our cabinet mission to Israel. And I was flying from Warsaw to Tel Aviv with Yehuda and Aaron, and they were maybe two of four men total on this flight. Everybody else were women, children, a lot of young mothers with young kids. And as we were walking down onto the flight, I saw this, this mom and she had a little boy who was about two and she was struggling to carry him and she had all of her stuff. And so I offered to help her because I at the same time also had a two-year-old uh, and I know what that's like to travel with them. And in broken English, she was telling me, you know, we're, we're getting out of here. We're going to see our family and Israel. We're going to stay with them until this is over. And, you know, it's really hard. We're leaving our husband. We just don't know when we're going to see him again. And she was like super solemn and her son's eyes were just completely glazed over. And this entire flight, it was four hours, not a sound. Um, and those of you who have kids, and even if you don't have kids and you've ever been on a flight where there's been a child, you know that like that's not normal. I mean, I have a four-year-old now, he was two at the time, like I would have done anything for him to be quiet during a flight that long, but this was otherworldly. And that kind of summed up the feeling coming out of Ukraine at that time was everybody was just shell-shocked and, and scared and uncertain. And so when we went back in August, I wasn't sure what we were going to come across and what the people were going to be like. And I'll never forget when we crossed over that border and we made our way into Lviv, I was sitting next to Haley and we couldn't, we, we just kept being like, wow, everything seems so normal. Like, is this really a city that's in the middle of a war? Everywhere that we passed, there were people walking everywhere. 
all over the places. The trams going down the streets in Lviv were packed. Uh, the parks were crowded. There were children playing. There were elderly people walking. I mean, it was just lively and vibrant and beautiful. And we, it was nothing like we imagined. And like that just was the main sentiment we kept taking away was everything feels so normal. And the only sign that there was anything going on was that as we started to look at the buildings, we noticed that the windows were covered with sandbags and trash bags. Um, and it was later that I realized that's how they were fortifying these buildings and the basements that they were using as bomb shelters. And that was the only indication in going through the city that it was at war and that we were in a war zone. So we went to bed that night feeling like everything's gonna be fine, like nothing's gonna happen. And I was dead tired. I had had a horrible flight situation getting there. And the siren went off and I missed it completely. And I woke up at 4 a.m. with a loud banging on my door and Yehuda yelling my name, Abby, Abby, get up, get up, come on. And I open the door and I look in the hall and everybody else is sitting there. And he's like, get your passport, get dressed, come on, get in the hallway. And as soon as I was able to do that, we got in the hall and he's like, let's go to the bomb shelter. And thankfully I was so tired that I didn't even have a moment to be scared or nervous or worried. And it was there that we were in the bomb shelter for about two, two and a half hours. I think we were released around like 6, 15-ish. Uh, but while we were there, it was really eerie, right? Like we were the only people in the hotel save for a mother and her son and maybe a couple, like two or three other people who were out in the hall. Um, and it, just watching this mother and her son, I mean, they were so somber, but kind of unfazed at the same time. Um, and, and I didn't know if like, oh, maybe like we shouldn't be worried because you know, Ukraine's a huge country, it's the size of Texas. Uh, like it could be on the east side and nothing's gonna happen to us here. Um, thankfully I was oblivious because when we were released, we learned that this had been the largest Russian missile attack on Lviv since the war started. And about 20 minutes away from where we were, a bomb had struck and killed people. I mean, people died that night. And so it was really sobering and sombering. And it was like a way to kind of wake up and be like, wow, everything seems so normal on the surface. And then every single night, these people have bomb threats and they're under attack and they don't know if it's gonna be where they live, where we think is relatively safe, like almost at the Polish border, or is it going to be further east where you think all the fighting is? And so it was with that sentiment, you know, that like, wow, these people live through this and then they wake up and they carry on every single day that we went in um, to our, our site visits and to meet the actual people. So I think that's very impactful and it's helpful to understand a little bit about that experience, the context that you were talking about. We're at phase two now. This is something we don't know where it's going to go, how long this is going to go for. A big thing that I think is important and why we wanted to interview all of you is what is our role? Why are we playing a role 
in what's going on in Ukraine. So I think Haley, it would be helpful if you could share a little bit about what you saw on the ground floor in terms of the Federation participation and why we continue to want to invest, continue want to be involved in what's going on on the ground floor in phase two. Hi. So to continue on what Abby and um, what you said to begin with, Zach, we've raised over $90 million for humanitarian support. And the part that I want to share with you guys is to pick up where Abby left off. We spent the night in a bomb shelter and then we got up and Brett, Abby, Yehuda and I went and walked the city at 630 in the morning and it was like nothing had happened. I asked the hotel staff, I said, are you, are you tired? And she said to me, I've been exhausted for 18 months. And, and we felt that just from one night. But then we got on a bus and we went to the Hassad Center in Lviv, which is sponsored by JDC through our Federation dollars. So everywhere we saw, ultimately, Federation is sponsoring these agencies. And we were here on the ground prior to the war, which is why this infrastructure was there, that we can continue this work. And so I think um, I want to walk you through our day at the Hassad Center because we so many different people were impacted in one building and it can kind of summarize some of the stories and work that we do. This Hassad Center is a three to four story, I, I, I felt like I was walking a lot of stairs, maybe four story building. And it's really picture a small JCC. They are helping everyone from the smallest of children to people in their 90s. And so the first room we visited, there were probably 30 people between the ages of 70 and 90, and they spoke through a translator. One of the women we met, her name is Tatiana, and I believe she's close to 90. And she shared with us that she comes to the Hassad Center every day so she can socialize with her friends. And she says there's a term um, that the Ukrainians use for the elderly that they call them the leaning age because you start leaning when you get older. But um, she's standing tall and she's happy. And that's thanks to the center. And you have to keep in mind, Abby, Brett, and I, I wasn't like Abby. When they banged on my door, I was out. I was ready to go because I was a nervous wreck. But some of these people don't have the physical capabilities to go to a bomb shelter. So they're sitting alone in their buildings, scared to death all night, not knowing if that missile is coming into their building or next door. But then they can wake up the next day and go visit their friends and play games and have a good meal, which takes me to the next part of the center. They have an entire kitchen where they're cooking and they're providing food to those who need it. And one of the things that stood out to me, it, it, a lot of the people cooking were victims. They had to leave their homes and move to Lviv. And this was really a common theme throughout our entire trip that the people helping were also victims. And the way that they were surviving was by helping others. So it's victims helping victims. And that was really powerful to see. I'm going back to Tatiana for a second, but she kept telling us over and over through the translator, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Tell your tell the Federation back home, tell the JDC, tell Jaffe, Thank you. Um, and they really understand what the work that we're doing and how it's 
truly saving lives over there. Going back to in the Hassad Center, um, so if you go on the next level, there were a group of probably 10 to 15 women who were playing the piano and singing and dancing and Ukrainian and Yiddish, and we danced with them. And this is the way they bring joy to their day after possibly sitting through sirens, 12 to 15 sirens a day are going off or throughout the night. And then in another room, there were children and mothers who are refugees or internally displaced, which um, means they're out of their homes, but they're still living in the country. And they were doing art projects. And again, they were making art for new families coming in, not just for themselves. So it was a way to keep them busy, but a way for them to help others as well. Um, in another room, there were a group of men probably in their 70s playing chess with little boys who were probably 8 to 10. And again, just keeping keeping busy and keeping their mind off their reality. And they have a Hillel house in this building. There's also an, another important piece of the Hassad Center is that it's used as a warming hub during the winter. So there's a generator that our federations have paid for multiple generators throughout the country, but they cost about $20,000 a piece. And the Hassad Center we visited, we could see the generator outside and hundreds of people during the winter months would come and sleep here. And it's coming again, and they're expecting an even colder winter this year. So they're going to be people that use this building to stay warm. Also, they have small generators, so they can warm soup, so they can charge their phones when they lose electricity. And things that you don't even think of that our Federation gifts have helped them be able to buy. Finally, I think one of the most impactful parts of the center on the bottom floor is where the trauma specialists meet um, with people and really provide the mental health services. So one of the things that stood out to me that I didn't think about before is the war has been going on 18 months. And at the beginning, a lot of moms and their children left and the dads stayed. And now the divorce rate is higher than it's ever been in Ukraine. In addition to that, the suicide rate for men is also higher than it's ever been. So even if the war stopped tomorrow, the generational trauma that's going to continue is you, you can't even put a, you can't quantify that or put a, I, that's going to continue. Um, and we're helping them. We're, we're training mental health counselors and trauma support, and, and they're dealing with every age from children to the men whose wives have left, to the women who have lost their spouse, to the elderly, and everywhere in between. So I think the Hassad Center, just for me, it, it really is not just keeping fit people physically warm, which that is one of its goals, but it's keeping them emotionally warm. And they're able to do that because of the support that we've given them. I think it's so important, some of the work that's going on, understanding the centers. To that point, we wanted to focus on a few specific projects in terms of 
where our dollars are going and what's happening. So I know another project you guys visited and wanted to share a little bit about is the Jaffe camps. You guys alluded to a little bit about children. You know, obviously you spoke about the elderly and other people that you're helping. We we're fortunate that it was a warm winter this past winter. We'll see what happens next winter. But obviously these children that are growing up in this center are going to be the children that are shaping the future generations that we're going to be dealing with. So maybe Brett, if you want to share a little bit about the Jaffe camps and some of the children and some of the, the programming and things that we're doing to help that next generation. Great. Thank you, Zach. And Shanatova to everybody. And um, for those who fasted today or are still fasting for uh, Son Gedalia, hope you had a meaningful day. But before I get to the camps too, Zach, I, I just want to uh, take us through, we went further west to what we felt was a relatively safer part of Ukraine, um, which has seen a lot of migration because it's a safer place to be. So on our way out to a, a mountain town in the Carpathian Mountains, we visited a, a, an American Joint Distribution Committee housing facility where they took a hotel that was in this like Stalinist era building. And it's now a hotel and JDC is renting about 110 rooms there. And there we met with families from and individuals who are Holocaust survivors to children. And they're now staying uh, in this hotel and they're what's called internally displaced persons. And we had conversations with them and learned their story. And it's, it's remarkable how resilient uh, each and every one of them are. And they're committed to, to really seeing this through and, and uh, getting back to normal. Uh, and we continued on from there to a, a town, Mukachevo, also west. And it was there we, we met with, uh, there was a Jaffe Aliyah program. And we sat in a circle with a number of people. And we went around and one question we asked was like, what's your February 24th story? And that's like the start of the war. And we heard from each and every, every person their story. And uh, one that really struck me was there was a husband and wife. They lived on a, in a border town. I forget the exact town. Uh, but within a few days after February 24th, their town was bombed. Their home was destroyed. And so soon thereafter, I think it was within days, uh, the Jewish agency found them and uh, was able to get them to a safe place and give them options for survival. That story touched me, but there's you know countless stories like that. And we continued back to Zach, your question about the children. We, we went from there in Mukachevo, there's a camp about a half hour away in this town, Pollyanna. And um, it could have been like the Catskills or the Poconos. And we were out in this little town and there were about 60 kids there. And the Jewish agency created this camp basically this year. They're like, we're going to put a camp together. We have no idea how many kids are going to show up, but let's, let's put programming together. They had social workers there. Um, and, and it was remarkable. There were 60 kids from all over Ukraine. Some kids were put on trains that were 24 hour train rides to this camp and their parents just trusted that 
they would end up in a good place because that's how desperate things are. And they, you know, and the kids ended up at this camp where it was one week and just like the happiness that you saw, that we saw at this camp was amazing. And hopefully this camp will continue. And, and this was just one example, Jaffe putting an idea into action and hopefully next year they can continue to expand from 60 kids to more and do more than, than one week of a camp. And then we continued on and traveled south and we went through the Hungarian, uh, the Ukrainian-Hungarian border and we were back at Camp Sarvash where many of, of us on this call were visited, you know, not too long ago uh, in March of this year. And it was there uh, as well that we saw just the resilience. And there's kids at, at Sarvash from, I think it's 14 plus countries, but in particular, many uh, children from Ukraine are, were at this camp. And we went to the Kapala and, and danced and just saw like the pure joy that these kids uh, are having. And, um, you know, despite there being a war, like they're resilient. And I, I think it's remarkable. And Haley said that the reason why we're able to do and JFNA and our partners, Jaffe and JDC are able to do all this work is because they've been in this region and working here for decades. Day one, they're able to, to keep going and, and make life better and, and really give pride and dignity and hopefully like a sense of normalcy to, you know, the youngest to the oldest in our population. And so I was just privileged and, and really honored to be a part of this mission and a part of the work that all of us are doing. So thank you, Zach. And I think, you know, the other thing to remember, why is this infrastructure here? Everyone, the Jewish population in America, we're immigrants. You know, my my grandmother, my family is actually from Kumlosh, from the Carpathian Mountains. My grandmother's a, a Holocaust survivor from the area. So I'm sure we have extended relatives and in a different alternative world, it could have been us that was in this situation, which is why it's so important that we're there to help our fellow Jews from around the world, since we're such a small population. One of the reasons we wanted to, to do this call wasn't just to hear about what you guys did, but kind of what your takeaway was from this experience that you could share with your Hevre. So I open that up to any of the three of you. We don't have to keep going around in a circle, but I think it would be helpful to understand kind of what was your takeaway from having experienced this in terms of what you hope people to learn from from what it was that you were experiencing from being there? I'll take that one. I think one of the biggest things that I could say to everyone is if you're given the opportunity to take it, Ben, I hope you don't mind me sharing. When Ben asked me to go, invited me to go on this trip, I could literally see him sweating. He was so nervous because I think he knew I would say yes. I have a four and a half year old at home and as important as this work is to me, I have a four and a half year old at home and my number one job is being a mom. And I, I was scared, but I, I knew that it was my responsibility and I knew this is his, this is going to be the history that she learns about. And I wanted to be able to tell her one day when she's old enough to understand this is what your mommy did. You know, I asked my parents or my grandparents, what did you do during the civil rights? Or, and I want to be able to give her an answer. And 
through stepping up in cabinet. Um, this is my seventh year on cabinet and I've tried to take a role or some something every year to stay involved. And because of that, I've been given unbelievable opportunities last year to go to Ethiopia and bring back the Aline to Israel um, as the cabinet missions, which we all have the opportunity to go on. And now this going to Ukraine. And so my advice to everyone is just really, if you, if you can, and if you're able to step up and take chances and take these opportunities, because they truly are once in a lifetime opportunities that we're given as cabinet members to help Jews all over the world and to help people all over the world. Abby, I think. Yeah, I think so I want to echo what Haley said. I mean, I'm so fortunate to have been invited on this trip to be part of this task force. Um, and I think it's my involvement both at home and on cabinet. Uh, so I encourage everybody to step up in any way that you can and take any opportunity given to you. And they told us about this trip. There was zero chance I was going to say no. I have three kids at home and I was okay leaving them. Um, but for the same reasons that Haley said, I, it's, I want this to be the legacy that I live, leave for them is that it is so important to both me and my husband, um, their dad, that we continue to support uh, the federations and everything they do. Um, and as it relates to Ukraine specifically, what I really took away again was the power of the collective. And this is all made possible because of the donations that we make. The infrastructure was already there because we're giving every year to our annual campaign and that money is being used to support the JDC and Jaffe and their organizations and networks on the ground. And we were there as a collective to step up and give at the time of the Ukraine crisis, uh, initially at the onset of the war. And that is how we were able to raise over $90 million. And what we saw on the ground solidifies that there's more to be done. Um, one thing that really struck me that I thought about after the fact, you know, I came home and my kids started school the next week. And I thought, wow, for these children that I met in that camp, uh, they haven't had a normal year of school in three years, right? Like there was COVID and then they probably went back with masks and, you know, like maybe did half a year of learning and then immediately the war broke out and they were home again. So it is going to be a long time until their lives are normal and we need to be there for them, for our Jewish brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Many of us, like Zach said, uh, have families that originated there, and that was the tale of settlement. So, so many of us Ashkenazi Jews came from Ukraine and the surrounding neighborhood neighbors. And like he said, like it, any twist and turn of events, it could have been one of us over there with our families. Uh, so it's just really motivating for me to continue giving and being a part of this. I think Haley mentioned taking opportunities going on this trip and Abby echoed this, but you know, you, you think back throughout time, you think of Lechacha and part of what we're doing here, it's not just the people who are on this Zoom call, but the people listening, some of them are pers perspective, Hevre members and cabinet members. 
this is an opportunity to, to go on a journey and really take advantage of this leadership journey that we're all going on. One of the things before I open it up to Q&A, because I'm sure many of you have much more astute questions than I do, but Brett, as co-chair of cabinet right now, what's next? You know, what, what does that mean? We talked about phase two. You wanted to take the time to share what it is you learned. I'm sure that there is a moving forward. How do we continue to stay involved? What is it that we're looking to do as a community? Sure. And I just want to also reiterate, while I, you know, was interested in, in going, my first question was to my wife, can I go? And she did not hesitate, which either she doesn't love me or she just joined cabinet this year and was like convinced that retreat, this is just what we do, you know, when when there's an opportunity, we we go. And so I was just honored to be a part of it and grateful that my wife said, didn't even hesitate and said, do it. As far as, as next steps, and I'll let Abby and Haley also jump in after me, you know, this is going to take, this is a sustained effort. And um, this is going to be years and a generation, maybe even more of uh, an effort in Ukraine and to allow for normalization once things you know get back to normal and, and we're beyond a war. So I think we're there's the task force that will be meeting pretty regularly and then there's going to be probably another effort to uh, raise funds throughout our system to meet the needs that we saw firsthand are, are great and they're growing. So Abby, Haley, feel free to jump in on top of that as well. I, I think just one last thing is the reason we do this and the reason we're on Zoom tonight and telling these stories is obviously to, to tell you guys about it. But what's really key is now these are your stories to take them back to your communities and share these and reach out to Brett, to Abby, to myself. And we can, I mean, we only had an like in 40 minutes, but we could talk for hours about a four-day trip. Uh, my elevator spill has been that I felt every human emotion possible in a four-day trip, but it's because of the people we met and the stories and the impact. And so make these your stories now and take them home to your communities so that people understand the importance of what we do and why it's important to stay involved and to continue giving and to continue supporting your annual campaign and these emergency campaigns that are going to come down the road. And I would just say that we're recording this, so you can feel free to share the episode once it's live with your community, prospective people for cabinet to share, you know, how they can get involved and how this is such a unique opportunity for young people, you know, to be involved. So I, I want to open it up to questions, but we're on a Zoom call and there are a lot of people. So I think the best way to do this is maybe to have people write the questions in the chat so that people don't talk at the same time. And I'll just share your name and the, the question that you have. We have a question from a fellow fifth year, Bobby Gibbs. Is there anything we should be doing differently in our local allocation process this year, given what you learned? I can jump in. I think every, I'm not sure how every federation operates. I think they say when you've met one federation, you've met one federation. Um, but I think 
it's it's important to to make sure that Ukraine is part of the discussion. And when you're looking at allocations, when you're looking at formulas to JDC to Jaffe to to make sure that you know it's maintained because it's it's critical that infrastructure um, and to make sure that infrastructure stays strong. Yeah, and I can add to that as it relates specifically to this committee. We are currently, like we said, in the fact-finding uh, process, and we will be coming up with a plan that will be being rolled out to federations in the coming months. However, in the meantime, there are so many people that are willing and able to come to your meetings and speak to what is happening there. There's Amira from the Jewish Agency, Oksana from the JDC, and several others. So I would say invite them to come and talk about what's happening and what's needed and to keep it current in conversations so that it's not forgotten. I'd also add that each community has people who have ties and connections to the area. If you remember at retreat, I, I helped interview Mike and Julie Right. And part of it is sharing those stories, those connections, why we're involved, why we're engaged and how that's part of our community, just so people can make that decision. So we've got a few other questions here. So Gil was asking, was it easy to get to Ukraine? How did you get there? It sounds like it was a pretty major endeavor for you guys to get to the country at all. Abby, you might have had the longest trip there, but I can give you the short version. So we flew to Poland to Warsaw. And then from Warsaw, we flew to another city in Poland. Brett, if you can pronounce it. Jeju. Um, airport car code RZA. And um, then we took a bus into um the into Ukraine. We were with a diplomat. So the line to get into Ukraine was actually about, they said eight hours long the day before, I believe. I mean, there were tons of people go trying to get back into the country. We were able to get through in about 30 minutes, which they said is even a, a big feat for traveling with a diplomat. So that's how we got in. Our way out was a little longer, but not because of customs or anything, just we were going a different route and we think we might have taken a few wrong turns, but um, you can't fly into Ukraine. So we flew into uh, Poland and then went, drove through to Ukraine. Can I add one more thing um, back to Bobby's question too? Sorry, um, is that... From my understanding, and I'm just speaking as um, from Northeast Florida, but there's been a trend that I've heard of people reducing their overseas allocations. And I think hearing stories like this and the impact we're making really builds a case for why we need to keep those allocations going to Israel and overseas in addition to the work we do in our local communities. Because if we had not been giving to JDC, Jaffe, or these organizations prior to this war starting 18 months ago, none of this work that's happening now would be possible. So what you can do back home is really advocate for your community's allocations to Israel and overseas every year. Thanks, Haley. So I think for anyone who's listening, if, what would be the the key points if you wanted to kind of summarize what you were hoping to share about your trip there, 
and what it is that you want Hevre and anyone who's listening to the podcast later to take away from this experience? So as we've said a couple of times, like it's very obvious that there is still need and there's still a war going on. Uh, one of the things we talked about at Fed Center is it is what they call a warming hub. And we, uh, JFNA has provided funding to provide generators, which power these centers and give people warmth, electricity, the ability to eat hot food during the winter. And one thing that we learned is that they have not, Ukraine itself, the country has obviously not been investing in repairing their infrastructure during the war. And so they're expecting more people than ever to use these warming centers and these hubs this winter and to come for food and services. So we still are providing that emergency funding uh, or emergent, those emergency services right now. And as Haley alluded to earlier, there is so much trauma and it's all starting to be felt. So there's definitely a need for counseling and services to get people through that and to the next step. Uh, people are still fleeing their homes, although many people are no longer leaving Ukraine, they are displaced throughout the country. So they need to find shelter, they need to find jobs, they need to find ways to survive. So all of these basic needs are still very much uh, at the forefront and top of mind right now. Really, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add to that. Okay, really quickly. I had um, some figures for those of you who are numbers people that I think are really impactful. 500,000 people have already received humanitarian assistance, relief or support. 700,000 meals have been distributed, 90,000 people have been supported in making Aliyah, 4,000 medical and mental health professionals trained, and at least 130,000 people have received medical care. So I, I'll put that in the chat, but I think that those numbers speak for themselves. And that's to, our, to what we keep saying, this is just the beginning. And we, we talked about infrastructure, um, both how we were on the ground before in terms of what's going on. So Mike Nogan asked how much the basic infrastructure has changed or improved between partner agencies uh, since your visit. Um, so I think, you know, talking about infrastructure is really important. This is a war-torn country, and we need to make sure that there is an end in sight and that we're helping them build something that's sustainable over time that's not going to be just dependent on our donations. So I don't know if any of you want to talk about some of the infrastructure, what you've seen there, and maybe how some of that is changing or improving. I would, I could just point out like a, one of the things that was remarkable was this is one of the first times, at least I saw up close where JDC, Jaffe, and then a one of the recipients of uh, funds, Chabad, was really working hand in hand because Chabad had also has an amazing infrastructure in Ukraine. So they linked up with JDC and Jaffe. And so the three of them together have been able to really work hand in hand. I thought that was really uh, a remarkable to see. I, th I think you'd say that's an improvement in, in strengthening that relationship. Well, Abby, Brett, Haley, I want to thank you so much for taking the trip on behalf and representing the entire cabinet organization and all the work that 
everyone's doing in their local communities. Because while we should all take advantage of the experiences we have, we can't all take advantage of every experience. So we really appreciate you guys not going, just going on the trip, but sharing the wisdom, what you learned from the trip. And I hope for everyone listening, this was impactful. And it's something that you're going to want to be able to share with your community about how our dollars make a difference in Ukraine and also a real experience of the types of trips that you have the honor and privilege of being able to par- take a part of. And hopefully, you know, as I mentioned, you take that journey uh, through cabinet and you're able to take advantage of some of the uh, opportunities you're given. So thanks everyone. Through the zooms and the frozen time, leaders step up to change lives.